and they were hosting a woman by the name of Joyce Ann Brown, who had been wrongfully convicted of murder in Dallas County and had later been exonerated and proven innocent and had a airtight, solid alibi. I mean, there was absolutely no way physically that she could have committed this crime, but was still convicted. And it took her years to get exonerated and out of prison. Um, but listening to her, I think was the first time it really dawned on me that this actually happens to people. I mean, you hear about things happening in the news. Occasionally you'll see a TV show where these outrageous cases happen. And you think, oh my gosh, that's just not real. But seeing her made it real. Everybody. Welcome to another episode of Under Oath, a podcast brought to you and hosted by the organization Women Pursuing Law. I'm Hani Siddiqui, WPL's president. And I'm Zara Kabir, WPL's vice president. Under Oath will aim to shed light on different career paths within law, give you the chance to hear from noted speakers, and show the industry from the POV of a woman. Under Oath will also serve as a platform dedicated to empowering women and non-binary conforming individuals in the law industry. So if that aligns with your ideas, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. On that note, be sure to follow us on our Instagram at UTDWPL and our LinkedIn at UTD Women Pursuing Law. And without further ado, let's get right into this episode. Welcome back to another episode of Under Oath. I'm Kavya and I'll be your host for today's discussion. Today I'm joined by the program coordinator of the Innocence Project at UTD, Natalie Austinfort. Ms. Austinfort has worked with the Innocence Project for over seven years and is also working as a director at the Alliance for Justice. For undergrad, she attended Trinity University and graduated in 2004 and then graduated from Texas Wesleyan Law School in 2007. Ms. Fort, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Currently, I serve two roles. I have two jobs, effectively. One is as a attorney with the Innocence Project of Texas. And, and through that organization, I work with students at UT Dallas. And so we have a class every Thursday night at 7 p.m. And the students get to review case files and claims of innocence made by Texas inmates. And then for my full-time job, I work with a nonprofit organization called Alliance for Justice. And through our Boulder Advocacy Program, we work with other nonprofits of all different shapes and sizes and help help them understand the rules of nonprofit advocacy and lobbying so that they can do really good policy work with, um, you know, in furtherance of their missions. Before we begin, I do want to thank you for taking out the time. I know with your hectic schedule, uh, you still came in to talk to us about the Innocence Project and give pre-law students some insight into the world of law. I and our listeners greatly appreciate it. Thank you for having me. For our listeners who are unfamiliar with the Innocence Project, I know you kind of mentioned it before. The Innocence Project educates students on wrongful conviction and the causes and effects of it. And Ms. Austin Fort supervises student investigations of inmate claims of actual innocence. Ms. Austinfort, would you like to speak about your experience working in the Innocence Project of Texas and the two positions you held, Chief Staff Attorney and Executive Director? Sure. So the Innocence Project of Texas is a nonprofit organization, a 501c3. And as you mentioned, what we do is we work to investigate and litigate claims of innocence who are made by Texas inmates. And that organization was actually founded back around 2007. And 
what happened was there were several of us who were interested in doing innocence litigation at that point in time. And there were several different organizations across the state of Texas who were starting to to dabble in that area of the law and were starting to represent innocent clients. And what we did was we all got together and we decided to join hands, join efforts and create a new nonprofit that ultimately we decided would be called the Innocence Project of Texas. So with the Innocence Project of Texas, I graduated law school in 2007 and then immediately took over as the first executive director of the nonprofit. And so I actually moved out to Lubbock, Texas, which is for whatever reason where we were headquartered at that point in time, went out there and worked hand in hand with students from the Texas Tech Law School who had a clinical program where they were able to come in and investigate these claims, help litigate these claims. And so I supervised those students for a few years, um, working with the Texas Tech team there, running the organization and also running the clinic, and then decided that I wanted to have a more hands-on interaction with the cases because I was spending so much time doing administrative work <laughs> and and supervision that I really wanted to dig in and get a little bit deeper with the cases. And so luckily we were able to get some grant support that allowed me to move from Lubbock to Dallas and I transitioned into the chief staff attorney role with the Innocence Project of Texas at that point in time and was able to really dive into the cases a little bit more and spend more time on the litigation component of the cases that we were reviewing. And so during my time at the Innocence Project of Texas, in that chief staff attorney role, had a lot of successes. I think, you know, one of the cases that I'm really proud of is the the case of Johnny Pinchback, who was one of my clients. I represented him with co-counsel Gary Udishin, who is a, an amazing criminal defense attorney here in Dallas. But he had spent 27 years incarcerated for two sexual assaults that he didn't commit. And we were able to prove it with DNA evidence. And Johnny is still a good friend to this day. But, you know, ever since then, needless to say, I've been totally hooked. (laughs) I wouldn't quit this job for the world. And so even though I have another full-time job, I still do this part-time and I still teach the class at UT Dallas. But the UT Dallas class really emerged, I, I think, almost a decade ago at this point. And initially it was taught by Dr. Champagne, who was a faculty member at UT Dallas. And I would attend the class and provide my input. But when he decided to retire, it was it was handed over to me largely. And so now I'm the the primary instructor of that course. We work with students to review claims of innocence. And so effectively, the students every week are pouring over hundreds, if not thousands of pages of police reports, trial records, witness statements, letters and correspondence from the defendants that we're working with. And they write memos and they make recommendations to our litigation committee as to whether the case is ripe for innocence litigation or whether it needs to be closed. And so it's um, it's oftentimes that the students at UT Dallas are the front line in, in effect. They're the ones that that really are instrumental in figuring out which cases move forward to litigations and which cases don't. Um, and so it's a it's a very important role that they play. And obviously, as an organization, we're incredibly appreciative of that support because it takes a long time to get through these case files and we need all hands on deck. That is that is incredible. I think the fact that you are balancing all of that and as well as you put so much time and effort into um, just proving innocence for people that are wrongfully convicted is absolutely incredible. Um, following up with something that you mentioned, you mentioned that right out of law school, you kind of went went straight into the Innocence Project. 
was there a reason that you were pulled towards there? Because I know a lot of prospective students, they are thinking they want to go straight into like big law or go into a big law firm. Was there a reason that you decided to go a different route and go into the Innocence Project route instead? I did. I mean, I think to some extent I was always interested in criminal law. So I always had that in the back of my head as a possibility. I was also always interested in politics and public policy. And of course, you know, why do wrongful convictions happen? Well, the system is set up in a way that they can occur fairly regularly. And so I wanted a job that would integrate my love of criminal law, that would integrate my love of policy, and that would really allow me to do both, to work on cases and then also to impact legislation. And so I didn't really know what that would look like. I didn't really know if I would go into private practice or if I would try to get a job as a public defender or maybe as a, as a DA. Um, but what ended up happening was while I was in law school, in, in law school, you, it's much like undergrad, right? You have a whole bunch of different clubs that you can join. I think, I think you might be part of one as well. But you, you join these clubs or you go to a club's lunchtime meeting. Oftentimes they offer free pizza. So it's very enticing as a poor law student. Um, and you show up and you have your pizza and you listen to whoever is the speaker for the day. And I attended along with a friend of mine. We went to a Black Law Students Association meeting and they were hosting a woman by the name of Joyce Ann Brown who had been wrongfully convicted of murder in Dallas County and had later been exonerated and proven innocent and had a airtight, solid alibi. I mean, there was absolutely no way physically that she could have committed this crime, but was still convicted and it took her years to get exonerated and out of prison. Um, but listening to her, I think was the first time it really dawned on me that this actually happens to people. I mean, you hear about things happening in the news. Occasionally you'll see a TV show where these outrageous cases happen and you think, oh my gosh, that's just not real. But seeing her made it real. And then kind of serendipitously, as we were leaving that session, the uh, ABA has a law student magazine that I think they still put out, but at least at that time that they would put out. And so every few months you would see a new issue of that magazine and right on the front of it, picked up a copy as I was leaving because there was a story about the Innocence Project, which is a national organization. Um, and it basically was about how to start an Innocence Project as a law student. And at that moment, my friend Carly and I kind of looked at each other and were like, this is what we're supposed to do. And so we, we actually circulated a petition. Uh, we talked with some faculty members and they told us that, you know, in order to start an official club that's recognized by the, you know, by the law school, you had to have a certain number of students express interest. And there's all these you know, hoops that you have to jump through. So we circulated a petition, I think, in our torts class and our contracts class and got hundreds of signatures. I mean, it was crazy the amount of interest that people had. And that's how we formed our, our club. Um, but then ultimately, having a club wasn't enough because as law students, you can't litigate cases. We didn't have access to cases. And so we, at that point, started seeking out lawyers in the community to team up with and to work with on those cases. Wow. Um, that is really crazy that you as a law student were able to start something and then continue it throughout your, throughout your career and turn it into your career. Being involved with a project like this can be mentally draining um, as these are real people and one decision can fully affect their life and change that, change that. How have you dealt with or unplugged from these cases in the Innocence Project when you went back home at the end of the day? It's really tough. <laughs> it's really tough to do. I will say that, you know, my just kind of selfish 
immediate response to some of these instances where you just need to step away. You just need to to not think about it would just be to watch the dumbest television shows I could possibly find. I mean, like literally the less thought that was involved, the better. And every once in a while you do need that because, you know, you get so invested in these cases that you stop seeing the big picture. Sometimes you get really narrowly focused in on one little issue when if you just looked at the bigger picture, you might find your solution. Um, and oftentimes, I mean, that's that's actually one of the reasons why I love working with UT Dallas students so much, especially, you know, pre-law students and then also not pre-law students. We work with a lot of students who study biology, who study psychology, all these different issue areas. And I think the benefit to that is that those students aren't so focused on the law. Um, if, you know, if you're if you're worried about all the legal standards and legal hoops you have to jump through, sometimes you can't really see the really obvious factual answers that are right in front of you. Um, and so I think that it brings a, a diversity of perspectives to the class and really allows us to focus in on, you know, what we can do um, as opposed to, you know, my legal mind always goes to what we can't do. Um, so <laughs> so you've got it. You definitely got to have a, a way to shut off. Right. Um, but then also I think just bringing in new sets of eyes helps a lot too, just to kind of distance yourself enough so that you can actually see the bigger picture. I know that you've mentioned a couple times, um, like the idea that we see these stories on the news and we see these stories on TV and sometimes they're real stories and sometimes they're fictional ones. Um, do you see any misconceptions on the news of how this or on just television in general of how these stories actually play out? Oh, all the time. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty outrageous. Um, I, I do love my legal dramas every once in a while, my law and orders and all of those you know, different types of shows. But, you know, I think the one thing that people don't understand and don't really appreciate is how human the criminal justice system is, how prone to error it is. Um, a lot of times, you know, popular culture, these TV shows that you're watching, the crime happens they dig up all of this physical evidence and then lo and behold, you know, within 24 hours, they have DNA results and are able to completely solve it perfectly with no room for error. And that's just not real. Um, for one, you know, if you look at cases, the percentage of cases that actually have physical evidence that could be subjected to some sort of scientific testing is really small. A lot of cases are just you know, he said, she said cases, or she said, she said, or, you know, they said cases, and they don't have physical evidence. And so it's all based on witness testimony. And therefore, there's a lot of room for error there. Um, and even in the cases where you do have a lot of physical evidence, so maybe you have, you know, a murder case where there was actually physical contact between the victim and the person that killed them. Um, or maybe you have a sexual assault case where you were able to get a rape kit that you can test. That testing is not quick. Um, I know a lot of times when we would litigate cases and we would send evidence off for testing, I mean, we're talking months before you get those results back, um, sometimes longer than that. And so you, it's a lot of waiting. It's a lot of sitting and waiting. And then when you get the results back, figuring out what those results mean. And so I think, you know, it's, it's this very idealistic view that you get <laughs> when you watch these TV shows about how it works. And it's just not... It's just not real. Um, uh, but but, you know, at the same time, it does shine light on some of the issues. And, and that's that's a good thing. So when at least when I 
watch law and order shows or just like my true crime or legal shows, you kind of get this wall up that you don't see these people as human anymore. Or they're less of hu- less human than they actually are. And you don't think about the process that they've had to go through to prove their innocence, um, which is just a long, long process and truly just awful that they're in that experience in the first place. But that wall goes up and you don't, necessarily see that anymore yeah well i think you you just used the right term prove their innocence i mean one thing that people don't think about is that you know let's say that you get pulled over on the way home and for whatever reason the cops arrest you and then you get charged with some sort of criminal offense you can take a plea deal if you want you can go to trial depending on what that case is and you know let's say that eventually you are found guilty of that crime Well, the legal standard for you to be found guilty is you have to be proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, right? Which is a pretty high burden, at least it's supposed to be, right? There, you know, it's supposed to be beyond a reasonable doubt that you actually committed the crime that you are charged with. And so once you've been convicted of a crime beyond a reasonable doubt, if you want to be exonerated of that crime post-conviction, you have to meet a standard that's even higher than that. So effectively, you have to prove it. You have to prove that you are 100% innocent, which is an insanely high burden um, and a burden that most people can't meet. Um, And I think that's one of the toughest things about this job and one of the toughest things to kind of walk through with students is we'll go through 10 to 15 case files a semester. And a lot of times we'll look at the file and we'll think, this person's probably innocent. Like we, we see a lot of evidence of innocence here and we don't have reason to believe that the jury got this right. But the problem is if there's no way we can prove that conclusively with either some sort of physical evidence or maybe a witness that's recanted their statement, something like that, then even if that person's innocent legally, there's nothing we can do with it. And so it's kind of a matter of finding that needle in a haystack case where the person's innocent and you've got conclusive proof to show that. So Um, Speaking about directly about the Innocence Project at UTD, it's something that's very interesting to a lot of students and something my listeners and I would be interested in getting involved in. So how do you think that we can get involved with the Innocence Project? Yeah, so it's um, it's we do it every semester. Um, It's a Thursday night class, typically from seven to nine. The way that the university has structured it, I think it's capped at 19 students. We always have a wait list. So there's always more students that want to join than can. Um, preference is given to CV honors students. And so if you are a CV honors student, then when your registration window opens, you can automatically register, assuming there's space available. There's no approval that you have to get. You can just do that through the registration system. If you are not a CV honors student, that does not mean you can't join the course. What it means, though, is you need to email me and express your interest in the course. And then as spaces open up, I can start allocating those. Um, there's, there's no guarantee. And oftentimes people will try for many semesters to get in before they actually do. But um, it is, you know, a course that, that I think is, is worthwhile. And so anyone who's interested should definitely feel free to reach out and we'll, we'll do what we can <laughs> to get you in. Moving on a little bit from the Innocence Project, I saw on your LinkedIn that you were also a director for Alliance for Justice, where you work with local nonprofit organizations to boost their advocacy capacity and understanding of state and federal nonprofit advocacy rules. 
would you like to expand on your day-to-day work there and the work that you do overall? Sure. So the one of the goals of our Boulder Advocacy Program at Alliance for Justice is to really empower nonprofits to do good policy work. And so for me, joining Alliance for Justice as the director of the Texas office was a really natural extension of my work at the Innocence Project of Texas. Because at the Innocence Project, what we would want to do is we would obviously want to free people who are wrongfully convicted of crimes. But then in addition to that, we would want to take those cases and go to lawmakers and say, hey, these are the precise things that went wrong in the system that caused this wrongful conviction to happen. And also, these are the things that this individual is now facing as an exonerated person now back in society. And and what can you do to compensate them? And so we worked hand in hand with the legislature to get a lot of criminal justice reforms passed. And that policy component is what we really look at at Boulder Advocacy and Alliance for Justice. And so we work with nonprofits from a ton of different issue areas. We work with a lot of reproductive justice orgs. We work with a lot of voting rights organizations. We work with a lot of environmental groups. You name it, you name the issue area, we're probably working with them. Um, But what we do is we help to train them on nonprofit advocacy rules because as a nonprofit, as a 501c3, there are certain guardrails you have to stay between in your advocacy. You're limited on how much lobbying you can do. You're not allowed to support or oppose candidates, for example. And so we help people and organizations understand those rules so that they can be as bold and as aggressive as possible with their policy work without jeopardizing their C3 status. And so to me, that position is is the perfect role for me because I get to work with all of the groups that I've admired for so long and whose work I absolutely love. I get to help provide them assistance in the background to make sure that they can be strong advocates for their causes. So taking the Innocence Project, the fact that you work with the Innocence Project and at UTD and with the Alliance for Justice, how do you balance all of those all of those jobs <laughs> and all of those roles? Because it seems like a lot. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. You just, I mean, when you love it, you do it, right? I mean, so it's it's something that I love. I give myself the weekends off most of the time. And so like I, you know, obviously Thursday nights are spent in class with the students. Um, every day is spent with Alliance for Justice from nine to five. But I try to keep that pretty strict just so I don't go nuts. And then, you know, here and there, I'm working on my cases just a few hours here, a few hours there when I have time. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, it's definitely a juggling act. Um, there's a lot of balance that has to be struck, but so far it's working. I, I, I'm the type of person that likes being busy. If I get bored, I just don't know what to do with myself. So, um, But I also, and this is something that I'm a big proponent of, I also take vacation time. And I will take a week off. And when I take a week off, I take it off. I don't do anything. Um, so a good a good tool to keep in the toolbox is to always, you know, schedule time for a break. I, I think that's a good motto that everybody needs to everybody needs to learn. Um, with all the work that you were involved in, did you know what you wanted to pursue? Did you know you wanted to pursue these projects when you were in law school? You mentioned that towards the end you knew that you wanted to get involved with the Innocence Project, but was that what you were looking for at the beginning? And if not, what type of law were you looking at throughout law school? Yeah, I I think my interest was more in politics than it was in law. And I went to college at Trinity University in San Antonio, majored in political science. And that, that was really my passion. 
But a lot of the politicians that I admired so much and was really excited about, a lot of them had legal backgrounds. So to me, it kind of made sense to go ahead and go to law school and get that degree and then figure it out. Um, so I wasn't honestly totally certain. I knew that I was interested in criminal law. I knew that I was interested in politics. I didn't really know what that would lead to. Um, but I also knew in the back of my mind that I'm the type of person that if I had taken a year off or two years off, there was a chance that I just wouldn't go back to school. <laughs> so I was like, no, I've just got to go. I've just got to do it. And then we'll we'll see what happens. And so I went straight to law school thinking again that I would I would have more of a political career. Um, but you know, things happen and uh, the Innocence Project kind of appeared before my eyes. And that's what I ended up doing. <laughs> Well, my last two questions are something we usually ask to all of our speakers, as our listeners are mainly prospective law students. Therefore, we'd like to take on as much advice as we can. So first, what advice would you give to a pre-law student right now that you wish you knew? And second, what is something you would tell yourself going into law school? I think advice that I would give is if you are certain that you want a career in the law, when you're thinking about where to apply, where to go, what schools to consider, think about where you want to practice. Um, I think one thing that people don't really realize is, you know, unless you're going to a big Ivy League school where, you know, obviously if you graduate with a law degree from Harvard, you can probably get a job anywhere afterwards, right? Um, but if you're going to a state school or you're interested in state schools or you're interested in smaller private schools that are very local, the chances are that the networks that you're going to build while in law school are in those communities. And so if you know that you want to practice law in L.A., then go to school in L.A. if you can. Um, if you know you want to practice law in Texas, then stay in Texas for law school, because a lot of the law is based on networking. And a lot of being a lawyer is related to who you know and what you know, jobs you can get, what connections you have. And so I would say definitely, you know, kind of narrow your search. If you're, if you're confident in where you want to be, start looking at schools in those areas. Um, and then in terms of what I would tell myself, I probably would have told myself to study more for the LSAT. <laughs> Practical advice, but you know, <laughs> it happens. Um, so I, I think, you know, I, there's a tendency, you take these practice exams and you do well, and there's a tendency to just think, I'll just do it and you know see what happens but those scores really do matter a lot and so you know take some time to actually study and don't assume that you know how to answer those questions even though they're just you know reading comprehension questions and logic questions and that type of thing um and and take the put the effort into it and that way you you've got the most possible options when it comes to going to law school well i want to thank miss austin for for taking the time out of her schedule again to speak to us about her work and her career and giving prospective law students insights into her projects uh, we greatly appreciate it and thank you so much thank you for having me This is under oath, and I rest my case. Thank you for tuning in today to our bi-weekly episodes. My name is Maisha Shaif, and I'm the production chair for WPL. This episode was written by Nadia Bhatti, edited by Kara Curtis, and hosted by Kavya Venagopalan. If you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you left a short review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow us on Instagram at UTDWPL and LinkedIn at UTDWomanPursuingLaw. Goodbye and stay safe.